This podcast is made possible by the generosity of supporting members. Please visit dharmaocean.org to learn more about becoming a supporting member. You are listening to the Dharma Ocean Podcast. In this talk, Reggie reflects on the liberating experience that occurred in the space of a Datun retreat after a connection was established with the local ancestors and indigenous spirits of the natural world. This talk was given at the 2006 Winter Datun Retreat held in Crestone, Colorado. To register for the upcoming Winter Datun Retreat, please visit the program calendar at dharmaocean.org. The processes that we go through in meditation have been condensed in the various Buddhist traditions, as I mentioned to you before. I think part of the reason is that writing paper was expensive, it was a big deal to reproduce texts, and a teacher worked with students and basically talked students through most of what they did, so there was no need to write down a lot of things. For Western people, we, and modern people, when we read translations of texts, for example, it could be like a Tantra, in Sanskrit or in Tibetan, and it could say, it could have a line, make offerings to the Lokapalas and don't proceed until they're satisfied. One sentence. But when you get in a practice situation, you know what we've been doing this week? Which is connecting, really, we've been connecting with the land and with the energy that's been here. I mean, it's been a process. It's been a relationship. It's been, it's been necessary because up until this point, I don't feel it's true now, but up until this point, I have felt that we have been aware that there was work to do here, of the, very much of the nature that we did, although you know, I didn't anticipate you know, what would happen. But there was something that needed to happen. You know, sometimes you feel that way. There's something that needs to happen. You don't know what it is, but you know there's something. And ever since we came here, we felt that there was something called for. Now, I'm not saying the work is in any way complete, but the relationship with the land now of us meditators is different than it was two weeks ago. You have to do that. You have to be, as I've been saying you know, for the last two weeks, you can't regard meditation as something that is happening in separation from anything. I mean, meditation can only be carried out in connection with what's there. Most people don't have a problem with other people. I mean, when, when we talk about meditating and remembering being connected with the Sangha and with, the, with all sentient beings, remembering that we're doing this work for them, ultimately it's not for ourselves, most people don't really have a problem with that. Most people feel, yeah, that, that I feel that, that's why I'm here. 
But when we talk about the natural world, that's more difficult. And when we talk about the natural world as living and as being the ancestors in a more indigenous way, it's more unfamiliar. Nevertheless, if you look at Buddhist tradition, this is what they were doing. And we have hung a small tanka of uh, Padmasambhava there as a kind of reminder that when Buddhism was pretty much in the same stage going to Tibet as it is coming to this country, it was necessary to make friends with the spirits, I mean, what they call the Lokapalas. I would talk about it slightly differently, but it's basically the same idea that there are unseen forces that operate as the underbelly of a culture. You can't see them, and yet they run through a culture. In our world, we had a horrifying example of this in Nazi Germany, where things happened, and there was clearly there were clearly forces that the Nazis and the German people were tapping into that enabled them actually to do what they did. That idea that there are energies, in this case we were using the language of the Aboriginal people and their energy and their memories, which are very much here, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the unacknowledged realities, the underbelly. I mean, you know, everyone, you know, who has kind of suffered at the hands of modern culture will tell you there's something about modern culture that doesn't acknowledge the rest of us living and dead. And that's the work we have. You know, we've been talking about this all week. It's The body becomes the gateway. It's in our bodies. It's in the earth. It's in the mountains. It's here. That is an essential, essential part of bringing Buddhism into a new culture. You have to make your peace with everything that's there. The way the legend of Padmasambhava goes, he lived in the 8th century. Before he came, there was a monk from India who attempted to simply superimpose Indian Buddhism on Tibetan soil. The guy came dressed in his Indian robes. Uh, they tried to build a monastery on the model of Indian monasteries. He brought his books with him. He brought his monks with him. And they just tried to superimpose Indian Buddhism on Tibetan soil without making a relationship, not just with the Tibetan people, which they didn't, but, but with, the, with the Tibetan earth and with the history there and the people who had lived there and the, the departed spirits and the memories. They didn't want to do it. And they didn't know how to do it. And it didn't work. And so the Tibetan king realized, you know, this is really not working. I mean, we can't, we can't get to square one. And somebody said, you need to get somebody who's willing to make a relationship with this place. And they called this guy in Padmasambhava. And the legend goes that he spent his entire time making friends with the local spirits. I mean, that's what he did. The guy was a shaman. He was an um, aboriginal guy. I don't know, does he look like an Aboriginal guy? He's dressed up, you know, but that's sort of whatever. But, but he was, um, that's what he did. That's what he spent his time doing. We're kind of at the stage where we tried it the other way. We tried to impose Tibetan Buddhism, just bring it over and drop it down. Some people feel it's working fine. I feel like we need to do this other thing was Trungpa Rinpoche's way, so it's not my idea. That's kind of the way I see the first two weeks. So that's a bird's-eye view. However, there's a lot to talk about.
because I understand that for many people there have been moments of panic, wondering if we were all going insane, collectively insane. Some people felt that, why do we have to cry? Can't we skip that part? <laughs> you know, frankly, trying to make the space for it, and I was encouraging you to whatever, you know, and some people were very uncomfortable with that. I understand. I think we need to talk about it because there's been a lot of a lot of things have happened, and any time you take the lid off a group of people practicing, it does go its own way. It does go its own way. I was in situations with Chogyam Trungpa that were truly terrifying. Really, I mean, this was scary, but there were times with him that were terrifying because it felt like he was driving down a, a vertical cliff. He was, we were in a bus, and he was driving moments of true terror. So I know, I know, you know some of what you may have been feeling. I know that. I've had those moments, too, and do have those moments, because I like to see where I'm going, too. But at a certain point, knowing where you're going actually becomes the problem. You kind of have to realize that I have to trust the road and you have to trust the or you know like you're maybe you're a mountain torrent you have to trust the riverbed because that's the only choice I understand but I think it'd be good to talk about it a little bit I do this is helpful we should talk about it you know there was this <laughs> there was this moment when I was in my car and it was running and I was debating about we need to share this there needs to be honesty openness communication and it helps me and it helps you and it helps everybody so you know let's or maybe you feel, this is fine, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it. I came here expecting uh, one thing, and it was something completely different, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, but those are, th those are rare people <laughs> who can do that. And, you know, things you may have noticed, too, because anytime you get a community together, uh, all kinds of strange things happen. And people, you know, frankly, they bring their neurosis. We all bring our neurosis. In most situations, Buddhist situations, and I regard this actually as a problem, people are very well behaved. They're very well behaved, and they know exactly how to behave so that they don't show this uh, terrifying monster that's underneath their own surface. Or this greedy, or arrogant, or fake, you know what I'm saying? Very well behaved. And those are the Buddhist doctrines I was talking about that I led for years and years and years. I mean, they were great in a way, but they were uptight, and the people were held in. I started to realize after a while, something's... You know, and then I saw myself in retreat and other people, and I realized in retreat, you kind of just really let it go. And you go through whatever you go through. I mean, it's wide open. And my thought was, we need to do this together. It's not good enough me go on my retreats and then come back here and teach other people and not teach them the same thing. So part of what I'm trying to do now with Dhatuns is create a much more open situation and a situation where people actually can be who they are, that we're willing to hold each other even when we're being jerks and phony and we freak out and we become aggressive and we become very needy and we expose all of our disorders. There has to be room to hold that because that's actually who we are. All of us have all kinds of things going on like that all the time. And if we can sit being those people that we actually are, and willing to let other people know, hey, this is me, or at least this is part of me, 
it becomes very healthy. There's a sense of change and transformation, and, and that's where I think Sangha comes in, because Sangha is not a bunch of people going around behaving themselves, in my opinion. I mean, that's what some people think, that Sangha is just people who are being good and uniform. Everybody does the same thing. I don't think that's really Sangha. What I think is Sangha, I mean, because that's the way every community works that I can think of. You know, there's some exceptions now in the modern world where people get together and they do something different, which is great. But most communities do have a tendency to go in that direction. My sense of Sangha is a place where we can actually be with each other and appreciate each other. And sometimes people come in, you know, and they're very angry at me and they criticize me. And we talk for a while and then I realize, you know, they got a point. And there's something there for me to learn. And then I start to appreciate them and then they start to appreciate me. And pretty soon we feel like this, is, this, this was worth it that we met, that we talked. This was really worth it. That's my idea of Sangha. But to do it, there has to be a lot of trust, there has to be a lot of communication, a lot of willingness to own you know, your feelings and not attack people from hiding, willingness to kind of be out there and be seen. And I think practice, you I mean the whole thing about the meditation and the meditative state and working with the body, is it gives us the space so that we actually can do it. We're going slow enough that we can actually do that, we can be with each other in that way so, and be seen. I'll just keep talking until somebody raises their hands. <laughs> to download more of Reggie's teachings, find out about upcoming retreats, and to explore a variety of audio listening guides to assist you on your spiritual journey, please visit dharmaocean.org. Our music is by Jeff Beale and Nawang Ketchog from the album Tibet, Cry of the Snow Lion. <laughs>